Amen. Glory to God. We serve a risen Savior who is seated high and lifted up. He's exalted on the throne and he is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of giving our lives to because he has given everything for us. And the question today is simply this. Do you think that he is worthy enough for you to sacrifice yourself to him in the same way that he has sacrificed himself for you? You see, there will come a time in your life, at least once in your lifetime, when God will ask you to alter your best laid plans so that you can line align what you thought were your plans with his plans. And the question is, will you do it? Today, as we find ourselves in the first chapter of the book of Philippians, what we see is the apostle Paul giving us his own testimony as he explains to this church that he loves so much. The Philippian church was his favorite church. They were his favorite church because they gave when nobody else would give. They were his favorite church because unlike the Galatian church and the Corinthian church and most every other church, they didn't give him the kinds of problems that all the others did. And so when he sits down and writes this letter to them, he does so knowing that they are his favorite. I'm inclined this morning, quite frankly, to yield my time to the saints of God in this room. Those older saints of God who could tell you that their suffering and their pain has been worth it every time that they have yielded all of that to the Lord Jesus Christ. They would come up here and some of them would give you a testimony like Abraham and they would talk about the time when God asked them to sacrifice their most precious possession and they did it and they would give glory and honor and praise to God. Others would tell you a story like Moses. When Moses asked them to do something that was inexplicable and unimaginable and they tried to find all kinds of ways to get out of it but they obeyed God in the end. And they would tell the story of how their life was radically changed on the day they decided to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Others perhaps would be like Isaiah, who came to my mind as we sang that song. The picture of Isaiah, when he realizes that his sinfulness is the thing that stands between himself and him doing what God wants him to do. And once his sinfulness has, has been repented of and been atoned for, he then says, here am I, send me. And there might be those who, like the Apostle Paul, had a road to Damascus experience in which they thought to themselves as they breathed murderous threats against the church of God. They thought they were doing the thing that they were meant to do, but God called them to do something radically different. And on the road to Damascus, their life was changed because they said yes to God. 
And there might be others like the Apostle Paul who later, on the road to Damascus, once that was finished and he was prepared for his work as, a, as an apostle, as a missionary, and he finds himself on the way to his next stop, or so he thought. But then in Acts chapter 16, we see these words. In Acts chapter 16, we read this about the Apostle Paul. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. And during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Like many of you, perhaps, you were on a different road, but God has called you to serve him in a way radically different than you had imagined. And today, the title of this message is quite simple, No Pain, No Gain. What we're going to see today is that in your pain, we can see God's providence. In your suffering, we can see the sovereignty of God. And if you are willing to give that pain and suffering to God by having a perspective about him and about your own life that you can only have if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then your pain will lead to gain for the gospel. And the question today is this. Are you willing, like the Apostle Paul, like any physical trainer would tell you, no pain, no gain. Are you willing to understand when that, when that pain comes, you have an opportunity to serve God in a way that you might never have been able to do had it not come your way? In this message today, we're going to look through the first chapter of the book of Philippians. We're going to see five principles here. Five principles in this book that speak to how we can be the kinds of followers of Christ that he would have us to be. We'll see in this passage the principle of our own identity as both servants and saints. We'll see the principle of community because we can't do this alone. We need each other. We'll see the principle of resiliency. In other words, we give our pain to God and he gives us perspective to go through it for his glory and others' good. And we'll see the principle of gallantry here. All of that having the courage that we need to glorify God and serve others the way he would have us to do so. And finally today, we'll see the principle of consistency. Because it's not good enough to come to church just for an hour on Sundays if you're not willing and ready and able to live consistently for the gospel. Because the life that you live in front of other people may be the only gospel that they ever, ever hear. I'd ask you to turn in your study manuals to page 56 as I read these first couple of verses from Philippians chapter one in which we read, Paul and Timothy, 
bond servants of Jesus Christ. And I would ask you in this passage here, if you write in your Bible, like I have written in my copy of God's, God's Word today, underline the word servants and underline the word of. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in. Underline the word saints and circle the word in. Saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first principle we see here is the one of identity. See what God sees in you when you look at yourself. You see, too many of us are, are, are satisfied to see what we see about ourselves. And when you look in the mirror, maybe you see all the things in your life that you have done wrong. And when you look in your mirror and you see all the things that you've done wrong, the devil says to you, you know you're not worthy, right? You know that the things that you have done or the things that you have not done, you understand that you're not worthy to serve me, right? And what the Bible tells us here in Philippians chapter one is that you are worthy not because of any work that you have done. You are worthy because of the work that Jesus Christ has done. Notice also in this first verse here that Paul identifies himself and Timothy as a servant, as a bond servant, as one who because of great affection for the master is attached to them. Notice also as we talked about in Galatians that, that he does not identify himself here as an apostle. Unlike the books of Ephesians and Colossians and first and second Corinthians, he, he has no need here to identify himself as an apostle because in those books, when he sat down to write the letter, in my mind's eye anyway, he says to his, he says to his assistant, you give me that pen. I have a bone to pick with these people in Galatia. And I'm gonna sit down right here and I'm gonna give them a piece of my mind because I cannot believe that they have so quickly departed from the gospel. And when it came time to write the Corinthians, he said, you, you, you give me that pen. And I'm gonna sit down right here and I'm gonna give them what for? I'm gonna take them to the woodshed in this case because I cannot believe how they are behaving. They are behaving so unlike the gospel of Christ and I need to give them a good talking to. But when he comes to write a letter to the Philippians, he has great affection for them. And when he responds to them, he says, let's just talk about who we are in Jesus. He says, first of all, you see there in verse one that they are to be servants of Jesus Christ. And if you're a servant, a servant is what you are called to do. First Corinthians 6.20 says this, you're not your own, you've been bought with a price. Notice secondly there in that verse. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. 
Talking about servants, Paul says, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. You see, brothers and sisters in Christ, some of you um, would love to be a servant of God, but what you think that your job is, is to do your job and God's job. As a servant of God, your only job is to live your life consistent with the gospel and to tell other people about that gospel to the best of your ability. It's not your job to save another soul. It's your job to tell other souls about the one who saved your soul and then let God do the work that only God can do. And the second principle I see here under identity is this. Your saints in Christ Jesus. If a servant is who, what you're called to do, then a saint is who you're called to be. The word saint here is the same word from which we get the word holy. It means to be set apart for God. It means to live your life as if you are a saved person. In many religious traditions, you don't become a saint until you've completed your life and you've somehow earned the right to be a saint and there's a process and there's a committee and at the very end, somebody declares or some committee declares you to be a saint and you're canonized. Well. In the New Testament, you become a saint the very day that you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You go from being in a world of hurt to being in Christ, and there are only two ways to live. You are either in a whole bunch of trouble as a lost person on your way to hell, or you are in Christ, and if you are in Christ, the devil can't get to you in the way that he would want to get to you. Ephesians 1, verses 18 to 19. I pray that the eyes of the heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And today I would have you to simply remember, to remember this, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I love the fact that today we saw 14 people be baptized. There are very few churches in the world today in which uh, the, the church of God in that location will see 14 people to be baptized. And in Romans 6, what we see about baptism is this. We see that you are baptized in Christ. The very words that Pastor Jonathan said, you're baptized in Christ as a picture of your dying with him and you're raised to walk in him as a picture of the life that you now have in Christ. I love the fact that what we saw today from the age of five until the age of very much not five any longer, we saw the same simple gospel applies to a five-year-old as it does to a not five-year-old. And that gospel is this. You know you're a sinner in need of a savior. You know you can't save yourself. You know that Jesus Christ has done all the work on your behalf and you accept that free gift of salvation and you live your life for him. 
This first principle, identity. See what God sees in you when you look at yourself. The second principle we see here is community. You cannot thrive as a Christian all by yourself. You see, that concept is so foreign to Americans. Because from the time that you can understand English, people are telling you that your job is to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That, 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 that your job is to be autonomous and that you don't need other people. All you need is yourself and that concept could not be more foreign from the gospel because the fact is that we need each other. We need each other in ways that we can hardly even imagine but the apostle Paul, when he is writing to his favorite church, look what he says in Philippians 1 beginning in verse three. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. What I'd ask you today is, as we read these few verses, just note to yourself or underline in your Bible, note how much he loves these people. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now notice here in, in, in these verses what he says to these ones who have fully understood the gospel. He says that Jesus the one who began the great work in them is exactly the one who will complete it. And we contrast that with the Galatians because the Galatians knew that Jesus complete or, or started the work, but they thought it was their job to finish it. You see, he, he, he loves the Philippians because he understands that they understand the gospel is about what Jesus has done and is doing. It's not about us. I love the story of the polar bear boy. The polar bear son got to the ripe, ripe old age when he was ready to go out fishing for the very first time. And his polar bear dad took him out fishing and he took him out and, and got everything ready and, and about half an hour into the fishing expedition, the polar bear son says to the polar bear dad, hey dad, am I really a polar bear? Is my identity one that is polar bearish? Do I fit in this community of polar bears? And the dad said, well, what in the world are you talking about? You're a polar bear. I mean, you know, you're 100% polar bear. I mean, I, 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 I could give you my whole genealogy of polar bearism. And your mom is 100% polar bear. And I could take you home and I could show you all the genealogy of, of, of polar bearism. You got nature and you got nurture. Man, what do you mean do you have the identity to be here? What do you mean should you belong in this community? What are you talking about, son? He says, Dad, I'm just not so sure that I'm a polar bear because I'm cold. 
See what Jesus tells us here through the words of the Apostle Paul is that because of your identity, you belong in this community. Because Jesus began the work, he is the one also who will complete the work. Verse seven, just as it is right for me to think this of of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace, for God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. See what Paul tells them here, is that they belong in this community. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 12 because it it tells us everything we know to be true when we see the body of Christ with our eyes. It tells us that we are all different. It tells us that we all have a a role to play. It tells us that what's most important, though, is not about us as individuals. What's most important is, is, is that what we can add to the church of God. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 14, just as a... A body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. For we are are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part but of many. In verse 27, now you who are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. There's this sense of synergy here. A sense that while the individual pieces are important, synergy reminds us that the sum of the parts, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. You see, brother and sister in Christ today, you are a servant of Christ. You are a saint in Christ. Your identity is set, and you belong to this community, and this community needs you more than you could ever ask or imagine. And what Paul says to you, he says to them, and says to me, is don't be satisfied to sit on the sidelines. The third principle we see here in this passage, resiliency. Say what God says about your situation when you talk to yourself. Back in the day, some of you will remember, well, I I still wear an old school watch. And my old school watch reminds me of a Timex watch commercial back in the day. And some of you will remember the Timex watch commercial. This Timex watch was pretty amazing, apparently, according to the commercial. The watch would fall from a helicopter and land in mud and it would still work. 
And while it was in the mud, it would be run over by a tank. And after it had been run over by a tank, that watch would still work. And the tagline of this Timex watch was this. A Timex watch takes a licking and keeps on ticking. You see, in, in our culture, at least today, we seem to have, the, have lost the capacity for resiliency. We seem to have lost the ability to bounce back from hardship. We seem to have lost the opportunity to deal with difficulty and to handle hardship and to push through pain. And some of that difficulty, I would argue today, is because we have come to believe in our society that God owes us a pain-free life. We have come to believe that we are entitled to all the best things, and even if we're, uh, maybe especially if we're a believer in Jesus Christ, then we should be shielded from the other things. And I'm here to tell you today that it, that, that is not what the Bible says. Jesus Christ said himself that in this world you will have trouble. And one of the things I love most about the Bible is that the Bible not only doesn't mince words, the Bible never gives us the impression that when we come to Christ, our life is going to be pain-free. Rather, the opposite is true. The Bible says that God makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And the Bible says that those of your lost friends that you see in suffering, you're not going to be immune to that. But what he does for us is that when we um, are in our own suffering, he gives us a perspective, not just for time, but for eternity, that allows us to see that we are here for a greater purpose and a greater mission. What the Apostle Paul does, he focuses not just on the opportunity. He focuses on the obligation that we have as believers. He focuses not just on the pain, he focuses on the purposes that God has for us in our pain. You look at 1 Corinthians 1 verse 12 and following. And Paul says this, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. You see, look up here for just a second. We have to remember that when the Apostle Paul, who was so excited to write this letter, as he writes this letter, he writes it from prison. If anyone could give us advice about how to live a life of, through, through suffering, it would be the Apostle Paul. He writes this letter from prison. Notice he says here that there are things that have happened to him. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, God, what's the deal? God, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I'm going to write 13 books in the New Testament? 
Don't you know that I have the most radical conversion in the Bible and preachers will talk about me for the rest of time until you come again? Don't you understand? Don't you know who I am, God? He says, these things that have happened to me have happened to me for the glory of God and the good of others. You see, the, the question has always been asked from the, from the beginning of time, why do bad things happen to God's people? If you're going to have the kind of perspective that's gonna be helpful for you in this life, that is the wrong question to ask. The wrong question to ask is not why, the question to ask is what? What God can you do in and through me based on the situation that I find myself in today? God, in this situation, whether it's pain or, or, or finances or hospitalization or, or a job problem or relationship problem or any kind of other problem that you may have, God, what can you do in and through me in this situation right now? The things that have happened to me, he says, have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard, the elite of the elite now know the gospel because of what Paul has been through. And to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord have, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed pre preach Christ even from envy and strife. In other words, some of those dudes who, uh, who were jealous of me because of my ministry, because I had a following, and they know I'm in jail now. They're on social media today talking me down in hopes that their church is going to take some of my members. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes and I will rejoice. Despite the fact that he is in prison, despite the fact that his competition is talking him down for their own benefit, he rejoices in the fact that Christ is preached. You will know that in the book of Philippians, some version of the word joy is mentioned 16 times. The word joy, the word rejoice, the word rejoicing is mentioned 16 times. It's mentioned five times in the first chapter. And there's a difference between joy and happiness. Joy is the settled conviction you have that God is for you and not against you and that what you believe about your situation is based on the character of God and not the circumstances of your situation. It's contrasted with happiness because happiness is based on happenstance. James tells us this, this in the first chapter of his book, verses two through four. 
Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be pure and complete, not lacking anything. I love the fact that in James chapter one, verse two, it says, consider it pure joy. In other words, you have to make a a, a decision, a choice, knowing that what looks like it would not be joyful, in fact, can be joyful because of who God is and who you are because of who God is. Resilience, resiliency, the ability to bounce back, the ability to understand that your suffering, if you understand the perspective of God, your suffering, your pain, your difficulty, your hardship, your trials, your tribulations can serve for the glory of God. And the fourth principle we see in this passage, the principle of gallantry. Be courageous in your convictions regardless of the cost to yourself. Gallantry means being courageous under fire. Gallantry means being brave in the fight of dif- in, 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 in the face of difficulty. Gallantry is a military word, but in this, in this context, what the Apostle Paul tells these people that he loves so much is that he wants them to be gallant for the gospel. Notice. Verses 19 through 26. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed but with all boldness as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live and on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. See, in this this letter to these people that he loved more than any other church, Paul says, hey guys, I really would rather leave here because the chances are I'm going to be executed. And when that happens, because my perspective is such that I know that I'm here for eternity, not just for this life, when that happens, trust me when I tell you this, I'm ready to go. I'm ready right now to go. But I'd much rather stay here so that I can serve you and see what happens in your life for the good of the gospel. He says here, Just as you have seen me serve in this way, guys, I want you to do the same thing. I want you to be gallant for the gospel. Be courageous in your convictions. And brothers and sisters, you may not be imprisoned for your faith in the same way that Paul was imprisoned for his, but you might be ashamed. 
You might be embarrassed. You might wonder, do I say the things that I know I need to say in my workplace or at school? And Paul says, be gallant for the gospel. Finally, the last principle, consistency. Your life is not just about yourself. In verses 27 to 30, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs and you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries because you will have adversaries, you will have enemies, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. You see, the consistent life of Christ says that you do what the NIV says as the first two verses, in, uh, first two words of verse 27. Whatever happens, Whatever happens, you live consistently for the gospel. And as you do so, even if people attack you, your standing firm will prove to them that the gospel is true and will be evidence to them that you are on the winning team and they are on the losing team. Your brothers and sisters, this gospel that we have is so simple that a five-year-old can accept it but it's so life-changing and life-transformational and so lifelong that it takes your entire life to get to the place when you can fully understand identity and community and resiliency and gallantry and consistency. I don't know much about field hockey in fact, I, ne I never even knew the sport existed until six weeks ago. But apparently, we have a nationally ranked field hockey team, and these ladies are amazing. And so uh, Vicky and I go to these contests, and we try to find somebody there who knows field hockey. And we bother them the whole time. What just happened? Can you tell me this? What in the world is a corner? And the other day, I was, in fact, this week, I found myself, I stumbled my, my way into a planning session of three of our coaches. And they're sitting there with clipboards. They know what they're talking about. They know the rules. They know everything. And as I look through the window and through the window of the dugout that's being built, I see our magical blue field. And so I asked the coaches in my ignorance, so, so, so tell me, what comes next after the planning has occurred? He said, well, we're going to go out on the blue thing as a team, and the team is going to make the round thing go into the square thing. <laughs> and we're going to do that over and over and over again. No pain, no gain. Your Christian life, go out on the blue thing. You take the round thing and you put it in the square thing and you keep doing that 
until Jesus returns. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us the way you do and for giving us confidence in your word, knowing that you have given everything for us and all you've called us to do is to accept it and then to live it for the rest of our days. Bless your holy name, Jesus. Make us servants and saints who live for you until we see you face to face. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Costin. As a prayer of commitment this morning, I ask you to stand and sing this with me. Oh, Christ be magnified. Let his praise arise. Christ be magnified in me. you to do so. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you joined us. If you prayed to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you as you begin this journey of faith in Jesus Christ. So send us an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more, well, we're here to help you. So just reach out to us. We'd love to tell you more. Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. And if you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, then go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us help others with the life-changing truth of God's love.